Hi, this is Jeannie Drisco bringing you an episode of The Art and Soul of Healing. Today we're going to continue with Part 3, introducing the concept of intravenous vitamin C and focus primarily on cancer, but also on the addition of multiple vitamins, minerals, amino acids to the bag of vitamin C, some of the pros and cons, and the different situations in which that can be seen. So join me where we left off last time and picking up on intravenous vitamin C. During the past few sessions, we've talked about the use of intravenous vitamin C in more general terms, how to prepare the patient, making sure that their G6PD enzyme is normal, they have relatively preserved renal function, and no significant history of oxalate kidney stones. We also discussed infusion timing and how the drug intravenous vitamin C becomes a drug based on its dose and infusion rate. We really haven't talked too much about carrier fluids or what else is being added to the bag of intravenous vitamin C. And today we'll talk about that in a bit. Why is the vitamin C being used? What is the goal for the patient? And what not to add to the bag of vitamin C? Kay Chen and I completed a pharmacokinetic study, a classic study of how intravenous vitamin C is handled by the body. We started with a one gram dose in healthy patients and escalated that dose up to 100 grams. We also had a cohort of oncology patients that received 25, 50, 75, and 100 grams of vitamin C as part of this pharmacokinetic evaluation. One of the things that we found in this study is that there is no renal damage, no kidney damage from using even the highest dose, 100 grams of intravenous vitamin C. We also found that there were no significant alterations in the biochemistry that is in calcium, magnesium, in the blood counts, the, the red blood cell count, the white blood cell count, and there was no significant abnormality in bleeding times. And we found that EKG evaluation of the study subjects, both at baseline and after receiving intravenous vitamin C, was completely unchanged. There's no stress to the heart, in other words. A good portion of our translational research at KU Medical Center involved patients that had different types of cancer. If you recall, Linus Pauling and Ewan Cameron proposed intravenous vitamin C as a potential cancer treatment decades ago, but because of a negative Mayo Clinic trial that said there was no benefit with vitamin C in treating patients with advanced cancer, the therapy was dropped. It wasn't until the 1990s when Mark Levine did his oral depletion-repletion studies at the NIH using oral vitamin C and subsequently one gram of intravenous vitamin C that it was discovered that oral and intravenous vitamin C are two very different things. The intravenous vitamin C, as we've discussed in the past, becomes a drug with many different properties, including becoming a prooxidant in the extracellular space. It probably retains some of its vitamin-like activities. 
whereas oral vitamin C remains a vitamin. Therefore, the Mayo Clinic trials were in error when they claimed that vitamin C had no place in cancer treatment because they only used oral vitamin C and did not use intravenous vitamin C. Despite this anecdotal evidence from Pauling and Cameron for the effectiveness of intravenous vitamin C, initial clinical trials used the oral form of the drug only. And on the basis of the results from these trials, intravenous vitamin C was determined to be ineffective and its use for cancer was largely abandoned outside alternative medicine. But I do want to highlight that a mechanism of action has really only now begun to be uncovered. Some of the early hypotheses from Pauling, Cameron, Reardon, and others were that cancer metastases spread through weakened collagen and that the metastases could be blocked by vitamin C, which would make this collagen stronger. And ascorbate also inhibited the enzyme hyaluronidase, which otherwise destroyed the collagen. That was one of the early hypotheses. Recent studies by Levine, Chen, and others have shown that when you inject vitamin C into the vein, pharmacologic concentrations increase to such a point that it is driven into that extracellular space, that space around the cells. And because of this increasing concentration, it becomes an ascorbial radical that interacts with a transition metal and becomes hydrogen peroxide. So hydrogen peroxide is the drug that is formed in the extracellular space. And because of cell tissue work and some of our translational research, we know that hydrogen peroxide is cytotoxic to many cancer cells, but does not harm normal cells. Another important point is that you cannot form hydrogen peroxide in the bloodstream. And oral vitamin C concentrations in the bloodstream are not enough to drive vitamin C into the extracellular space. So it's only intravenous vitamin C that's going to affect cell kill in that extracellular space. And again, it's cell kill of those abnormal cells, but completely leaves the normal cells unharmed. One of our first translational studies published in Science Translational Medicine in 2014 looked at the use of high-dose parenteral ascorbate or intravenous vitamin C and how it enhanced chemosensitivity of ovarian cancer and reduced toxicity of chemotherapy. Chen and her team in the lab looked at three different ovarian cancer cell lines and looked at the role of increasing doses of vitamin C and cell kill. When K-Chin added catalase to the preparations, it completely erased the cell kill activity of the vitamin C, again supporting the hypothesis that the formation of hydrogen peroxide was the drug that did the cell killing of the cancer cells. K also completed experiments using paclitaxel, carboplatin, ascorbic acid, and varying combinations in all three together in cell tissue lines and in animal studies, showing that there was actually synergism when all three of the chemotherapeutic agents were combined. That is the paclitaxel, 
carboplatin, and ascorbic acid. There was increased benefit over and above just adding the three together. Well, in the meantime, we were treating patients in the clinic that had ovarian cancer. This was really the first rigorously done clinical trial that used intravenous vitamin C, and it was conducted as a pilot phase 1-2A clinical trial in patients with newly diagnosed stage 3 or 4 ovarian cancer. The study subjects were either randomized to standard of care, that is carboplatin and paclitaxel, or to the carboplatinum paxitaxel ascorbic acid arm or intravenous vitamin C combined with the two chemotherapeutic agents. The chemotherapy was given for the traditional six months time and the intravenous vitamin C was given for 12 months and the participants were followed for survival for five years. Because this was the first randomized trial of its type, we wanted to make sure that we didn't miss any adverse events, that we didn't miss any untoward effects that the intravenous vitamin C might cause in these patients. So we actually oversampled their adverse event data and we used the National Cancer Institute Common Terminology Criteria, which is a standardized assessment tool. What we found was the participants who were treated with carboplatin, paclitaxel, and intravenous vitamin C had decreases in almost all the categories of toxicity evaluated, including neurotoxicity, bone marrow toxicity, infection, hepatobiliary or pancreatic toxicity, toxicities of the kidney, toxicities of the lungs and the GI tract. Another exciting finding was that overall survival trended toward improvement with the ascorbate or the intravenous vitamin C addition to the standard chemotherapy. I would like to comment that this study wasn't powered for efficacy, so it was not a large phase two trial. What we were trying to do, since it was really the first randomized trial of intravenous vitamin C, was to prove proof of concept and to determine if there was a benefit, and of course safety, which we absolutely unequivocally proved. I also want to highlight, we do know that the generation of hydrogen peroxide in the extracellular space is causing the anti-tumor effect of intravenous vitamin C. But because of the way that this reactive oxygen species affects cells, it has been difficult to define a general molecular mechanism in all types of susceptible cancer cells. Different studies have suggested a variety of mechanisms, including apoptosis or programmed cell death, non-apoptotic cell death, ATP depletion, cell cycle arrest, and autophagy. So much more work needs to be done, but we do know that high-dose intravenous vitamin C is currently being administered to thousands of patients by practitioners of integrative medicine with enhanced understanding of anti-cancer action, plus a clear safety profile, biological and clinical plausibility have a firmer foundation because of these types of studies. All of these findings justify a larger and robust clinical trial for detection of efficacy, combining intravenous vitamin C with conventional chemotherapy. Subsequently, my colleague Channing Paller, an oncologist at Johns Hopkins University, 
reviewed the data from clinicaltrials.gov and found there were 35 intravenous vitamin C clinical trials and 29 of those trials using pharmacologic doses or high-dose vitamin C. After careful review of the clinical trials, Dr. Pallard concluded IV vitamin C in cancer care is well-tolerated with minimal toxicity and improves quality of life when combined with radiation and or chemotherapy. She concluded that these data, when combined, really called for more elucidation of the mechanism of action of IV vitamin C that could help in designing cancer clinical trials in the future and that more clinical trials were called for. In our clinical trials at KU Medical Center, we only mixed the vitamin C in the bag with the carrier fluids, either lactated ringers at lower doses of 25, but at higher doses, place vitamin C in sterile water because of osmolarity concerns. Otherwise, the fluid would be too hyperosmolar and not tolerated well. Also, we buffered. We made sure that the pH was in a good range and if needed, would add sodium bicarb to get in a good pH range. We also added magnesium to make the infusion more tolerable and less irritating to the blood vessels upon infusion. But that was the extent of what we added in our clinical trials. But let's talk about what happens in real-world settings at oncology care clinics that are run by integrated medicine practitioners. Sometimes the vitamin C is mixed in the bag with a variety of other compounds, including B vitamins, glutathione, alpha-lipoic acid, other minerals, and amino acids. This has been a concern of ours for a very long time. When we started conducting intravenous vitamin C trials at KU Medical Center, we noticed that when adding a lot of B vitamins to the bag for cancer care seemed to reduce the effectiveness of the intravenous vitamin C as a pro-oxidative therapy. We have not formally studied the addition of B vitamins to the cancer care bag. We do it routinely, of course, in the Myers cocktail, which is a lower dose 25 gram with B vitamins, magnesium, and sometimes other additives as needed. However, the production of hydrogen peroxide as a pro-oxidative therapy in cancer care is very different than adding or using intravenous vitamin C as a tonic. Kay Chen and I did do a small animal study looking at the addition of glutathione to intravenous vitamin C in the treatment of cancer. Glutathione is a powerful antioxidant, and we do know from this study that when adding the glutathione with the intravenous vitamin C, there is reduction of effectiveness of the intravenous vitamin C as a cancer therapy. As you've heard me say repeatedly, the mechanism of action of intravenous vitamin C-induced cancer cell death is through hydrogen peroxide. Glutathione is able to prevent oxidation of the vitamin C in the extracellular space, and it reduces the formation of hydrogen peroxide and reduces hydrogen peroxide directly. Neither one of these is a good thing when using vitamin C as an anti-cancer agent. 
So we strongly recommend glutathione is not placed in the bag with the vitamin C for infusion. Also, it's not given immediately after intravenous vitamin C administration. It could potentially be given on alternative days since the hydrogen peroxide formation is likely cleared from the extracellular space rather rapidly. And it is known that glutathione helps with the neurotoxicity of chemotherapy. So the glutathione has its place. We just don't recommend using it hand-in-hand with intravenous vitamin C on the same day. Also, there is a practice of using alpha-lipoic acid with intravenous vitamin C as an anti-cancer agent. That has not been studied. It is of concern because alpha-lipoic acid is also a very powerful antioxidant. We need to conduct the studies and find out, just as we did with glutathione, is there an effect or is there an addition to the benefits? So at this time, again, we're not recommending alpha-lipoic acid to be given at the same time as the intravenous vitamin C. But there are times when the intravenous vitamin C is used with a lot of other components in the bag. So let's segue now to the role of chelation therapy in cardiovascular disease. I want to highlight that chelation is a generic term for anything that grabs a metal in the human biologic system or even in animals and plants, but it has become synonymous with EDTA chelation that's used for cardiovascular disease. Again, EDTA chelation therapy is one of those therapies that has been used by integrative medicine practitioners for decades, but shunned by mainstream cardiologists and other mainstream practitioners. Because of the prevalence of the practice, this is one of those areas of integrative medicine that the National Institutes of Health, National Center for Complementary and Integrative Health, formerly NCAM, in partnership with National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute, decided needed to be studied. So they collaborated and funded the largest randomized controlled trial investigating EDTA chelation therapy for cardiovascular disease, the trial to assess chelation therapy or TACT, T-A-C-T. I was fortunate to be involved in the planning of this trial and to participate in enrollment of patients in this trial. Tony Lamas was the principal investigator. It was a well-thought-out trial with randomized placebo-controlled fashion enrolling 1,708 participants with a history of prior myocardial infarction or heart attack. At the conclusion of the TAC trial, it was found that EDTA chelation compared with placebo reduced the risk for adverse cardiovascular outcomes. The TAC trial showed a statistically significant effect in decreasing all-cause mortality in the treatment arm, that is, those people who received the EDTA chelation therapy. There are issues with this trial that I won't go into great detail, but there was a subgroup of diabetic patients that when removed from the active treatment arm analysis demonstrated that the benefit was in this subgroup of diabetics and not in the remaining participants randomized to the treatment arm. So there seemed to be an effect of the EDTA chelation on diabetic patients alone. I tell you this because EDTA chelation is just not the chelation by itself. It's important to know 
that the bag contains 3 grams of disodium EDTA, 7 grams of vitamin C, 2 grams of magnesium chloride, 100 milligrams of procaine hydrochloride, 2,500 units of unfractionated heparin, 2 milliequivalents of potassium chloride, 840 milligrams of sodium bicarbonate, 250 milligrams of pantothenic acid, 100 milligrams of thiamine, 100 milligrams of pyridoxine, and sterile water to make up a 500 ml solution. Dr. Lamas and colleagues decided that it probably had to do with heavy metals, that the EDTA was removing heavy metals from the diabetic patients, but of course there's, there is removal of heavy metal from non-diabetic patients as well. So the question remains, what is it in the components of EDTA chelation that's having an effect upon diabetic patients? And I've always contended that the combination of benefits of all of these nutrients were providing the benefit to the diabetic patients. And of course, I'm focusing on the intravenous vitamin C component of the EDTA chelation therapy solution. It is well known that diabetic patients are in short supply of vitamin C. There are actually many of them, when, particularly when they're uncontrolled, in a scurvy state. We have also shown in a clinical trial at KU that has yet to be published that diabetic patients have difficulty moving vitamin C across the blood-brain barrier into the brain and often have higher levels of depression as a result. Cardiovascular and endothelial function is also dependent on vitamin C levels and these are also short, in short supply in diabetic patients. So in summary, what is known from the first TAC trial is there is a significant beneficial effect of the infusion, which contains multiple components and has been referred to as chelation therapy, and this effect seems to be primarily confined to diabetic patients with, of course, their documented cardiovascular disease. Unfortunately, heavy metal testing was not done pre and post chelation therapy in the first TAC trial. So it'll never be known whether the heavy metal burden is as critically important as considered. There is an effort with the ongoing TAC2 trial to take a look at heavy metal burden in diabetic patients specifically. However, the opportunity to assess non-diabetic patients' heavy metal burdens has been lost. And the overt denial of the multiple components in the chelation therapy as potentially playing a beneficial role. In conclusion, mixtures of IV vitamin C with other vitamins, minerals, amino acids can certainly be beneficial. But as of yet, we're not advocating the use of multiple mixtures in cancer therapy. Those other components can be given separately, we believe, from the intravenous vitamin C in support of the patient undergoing chemotherapy and or radiation therapy. Only time will tell with increased clinical trials with a variety of doses of vitamin C in different combinations and with different medications to determine what's the best benefit for patients. Thank you so much for joining me today. There's so much more I'd like to tell you, 
but I think it would be better to stop here now and then next time we'll begin by meeting some of the world's experts in intravenous vitamin C. A special shout out to the Alliance for Natural Health USA for standing in the gap for our health freedoms and for making therapies like intravenous vitamin C available for all of us. Go to AllianceForNaturalHealthUSA.org and become a member today.